we're concluding Ecclesia today, a series all about the church. And just in case you haven't noticed over the past few weeks, let me give you a high-level summary of where we've been for the summer. We've been looking at the church as a community. And we started by saying it's a community of Christ. It's Jesus' community. It's a community of accountability, a community of mission, a community of impact, a community that worships, a community of relationship, three relationships, And last week, Josh talked about a community that is united, but not the same. Well, we're going to conclude this morning by looking at a passage that tells us that we're a changed community, that we're a community that has been transformed, a community that's converted from something to something, a community that's been reversed. Now, let me give you a little backdrop to how this message was put together. I originally, you ever have plans that never quite work out the way you thought? Uh, That's how this message went. I had planned a couple weeks ago that we would conclude by looking at three case studies. And the topic was going to be, church, a community of difference. I was going to steal that title from Scott McKnight. He wrote a book by that title. And here's what I was going to do. We were going to look at Acts chapter 8 and look at the Ethiopian eunuch, right? and um, how he is different. Look at Acts chapter 9, where Paul, right, a religious Jewish Pharisee, and Acts chapter 10, a Gentile centurion, and how they all experience this same community as God works in their lives. Uh, We're not doing that. And here's the reason why. So I start working on Acts chapter 8, the first one of the case studies, and I'm thinking, we need to look at Acts chapter 8 the whole time. And then the more I looked, I realized, Everything I wanted to say in the three case studies, I can kind of say from the one passage because we see in Acts chapter 8 pretty much everything we need to know about a community of conversion. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. If you use your phone, your iPad, your computer, or whatever, you, or you can just listen, I'm going to read the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, and you can follow along. That's Acts 8 beginning in 26, and I'll read through the end of the chapter Pretty much everything you didn't know is in there, and then we'll come back, fly over it, and give you some hooks to hang stuff on. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandike, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. 
The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who was the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotos and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. That's kind of an interesting story, maybe familiar to some of you. Notice in the story, however, the two main characters are very different. Now, you may not notice how different they are, but let me just walk through a little bit of the difference. First of all, we have Philip. Now, this is not the first time Philip appears in Acts. This is Acts chapter 8. Philip first appears in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, there's a big fight in the church. You say, well, what are they fighting about? Uh, last week, Josh talked about a fight. The church is always fighting, right? Some things never change. Well, in Acts chapter 6, the church is fighting but here's what the fight's about in Acts 6. The Jewish Christians were fighting with the Greek Christians because the Greek Christians were accusing the Jewish Christians of taking care of their widows and meeting all their needs and many of their wants, but neglecting the needs of the Greek widows. Can you hear the cry of racism, right? You Jews only care about the Jews. You don't care about us Greeks. The Greeks are saying, you guys are racist. You're only caring about the... Boy, that sounds similar to what we hear today, right? There's a big fight in the church. Now, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles come up with a really great solution. Obviously, the Spirit kind of told them what to do. Here was the solution. Rather than the apostles take on the job of now taking care of everybody's physical needs, they form a team. And a lot of people believe this was the first time deacons were established, right? Acts chapter 6, a group of a team member, right, leaders, deacons were established to take care of the needs of all widows, to make sure the Greek widows are cared for, the Jewish widows are cared for, everybody's going to be cared for equally in the church. And here's the amazing, you know, really interesting solution. Every one of the first deacons were Greek, the Jewish Christians, right, and the original disciples, right, the apostles, they're all Jewish. They give the checkbook to the Greek Christians. And they say, you take care of the needs. Make sure everybody's needs are met equally. They solve the problem by appointing a new team of leaders, and they're all Greeks. Philip is one of that group. So Philip is one of these Greek Christians who is given the responsibility to meet the needs of all the widows. So Philip is a Greek Jew. Philip's pretty committed. Philip's wanting, doing what God wants him to do. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to Samaria, right? And he's having a successful ministry. He goes to Samaria and he's attracting huge crowds. Lots of people are believing. He's experiencing success through the sky. And while he's experiencing all this success in Samaria, right, really good leader serving as a deacon, 
moved to Samaria, lots of success in Samaria. God calls him from Samaria to go to a lonely dirt road to look for one guy headed to Africa. Ever feel like God calls you to something like that? You know, situation's good, lots of success, things are going the way you want, right? People are coming, asking your opinion, and all of a sudden you're removed from that context into a context where you're lonely, completely out of your element, nobody respects you, nobody even knows your name. Sometimes God does that, right? Takes us out of a place that we enjoy to move us to a place we would never choose. And that's where the account that I read picks up. Philip, this Greek Jew, who was appointed a leader in the Jerusalem church, moved to Samaria, was a successful evangelist and preacher, now is on a lonely road, walking with a chariot, running after a chariot, headed back to Africa. So that's the first character. Now the second character is the CFO of a country, right? When it says he's the CFO of the Kandike, Kandike was a title, not a person. That would be like, you know, Secretary of State, the President's accountant. Kandike was a title. He's the CFO of a country, and he's a black African. So here's Philip. Philip is a Greek Jew having a conversation with a black African CEO. Different race, different ethnic group, different geography, different religion, different socioeconomic level, different financial background. Here's Philip, completely different situation, talking to a black African CEO who has everything Philip could ever have wanted in this world, and he's headed back to Africa. That's kind of an interesting story. Contrasting character. You know, God loves to take contrasting personalities, contrasting political views, contrasting racial groups, and bring us together into this community called church. And here we see it again. And if you read the next couple chapters, he takes a Greek Jew, chapter, chapter 8, and a black African, CFO, He takes a Jewish Jew, Paul, who's a Pharisee, and he takes a Roman centurion, and he puts them all together into this thing called ecclesia, and he says, guys, I want you to be a community, a community in mission, accountability, a community that loves each other and is doing what I'm doing. Yeah, God loves to do that. We see the contrasting characters. But in case you missed it, and maybe you don't see it right on the surface, there's a dilemma There's a big dilemma in the situation, and the dilemma is hugely discouraging. Let me tell you, the guy really wasn't from Ethiopia, as we know Ethiopia today. Ethiopia back then would have been called Cush. So when you read the Old Testament, Cush, C-U-S-H, that's where this guy was from. Ethiopia back then was called Cush, right? So you got to understand, it's not Ethiopia today, it's Cush back then. The Cushites were really enemies of Israel, right? They're not on friendly terms most of the time. In fact, if you read the beginning of Isaiah, I just happened to be reading this morning, you read chapters like 17 through 20 of Isaiah, you read God's judgment on Cush. Maybe the Ethiopian was reading some of that stuff, so I better go to Jerusalem before God wipes us out. We don't know. He traveled over a thousand miles. So from Cush to Jerusalem is over a thousand miles. He came from a different race, a different ethnic group, a different geography, different religious background. He is totally different. But somehow, 
the God of, of the Old Testament, somehow this temple in Jerusalem got on his radar screen and he just had to go there. The trip would have taken five or six months. Like, this is not a long weekend, guys. It's not like you go somewhere a thousand miles, we can fly. He's going to take a caravan, his chariot. It's going to take half a year over a thousand miles. Question, will he have a job when he gets home? We don't know. Did he give up everything to get there? We don't know. We do know that he'd given up a lot in his life. I mentioned all the successful things. He's the CFO of a country, right? Kind of like the Secretary of Treasury, more important than that. He has influence. His resume is really important. He rubs shoulders with the royalty of the day. He's sexually compromised, but that was part of the decision. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You see, if you were a male, one of the steps you had to take if you were going to be in the royal court, not only if you had a queen, but even with you know, wives and so forth, one of the steps to serve in a royal court in the ancient world was castration. They didn't want commoners, even those that were really intelligent, you know, being close to the females of royalty. That may present a problem. So this guy took a serious step to advance his career. But it's a bigger step than you and I can even imagine right now because in the ancient world, legacy was not established by how much money you leave. Legacy was not established by your resume, your reputation, how many people you commanded. In the ancient world, family and legacy was all about your children and children's children. This guy gave up his legacy to get what he got. And maybe he was thinking, everything I've longed for, right? I'll have money, I'll have reputation, I'll rub shoulders with the right people, I'll be able to travel the world, everyone will look up to me, I'll be able to write checks, not just for myself, but for the whole country. My life will be great. But did you notice? Something inside of him isn't quite fulfilled. It's not working, is it? And so some, his hunger in his heart is driving him to take a thousand-mile, six-month trip because what he thought was going to fill that hole in his heart didn't fill the hole in his heart. So he travels a thousand miles, six months of a journey. And this is the part you probably missed. And when he got to Jerusalem, he was not allowed to enter the temple. You see, he was not only a Gentile, he was also emasculated. And Deuteronomy 23 says, anybody that's been emasculated, eunuchs, cannot enter and worship with my people. A thousand mile trip. Six months of a journey trying to fill the hole in his heart that all the stuff he put in there couldn't fill. And when he gets there, he's shut out. No admittance. Not allowed to enter. Maybe he made his way to the court of the Gentiles. He certainly couldn't have gone any further. Have you ever been there? You know, you set your sights on something, right? You're, we're all living for something. 
you're accumulating this, you're storing that, you're marking off items on a resume, you graduate the right school, you get the right kind of job, you marry the right person, you have kids, you have grand, everything's going on, but something's still missing on the inside, right? And when you think you know what it is and you move toward it, but then when you get close enough, you, you realize you're shut out. Can I say it as plainly as I can? If you've never experienced that, you're not a Christian. Because every Christian's journey is that journey. Every Christian's journey is living for something, right, before you found the solution. You're accumulating this, you're doing that, you're doing life the way you think it should go. But you know something's missing, and then just when you begin to think what that something is, and you move toward all of your you're blocked out, you're shut, you're not let in. No admittance, no, no access. But then, someone presents to you the way Philip presented to him the stunning solution. The stunning solution. Do, do you think it's just coincidence that the guy's reading Isaiah 53? I mean, why wasn't he reading one of those weird passages from Deuteronomy, like, ring off the bird's head and sprinkle the blood here? He's not reading one. He's reading Isaiah 53, right? Maybe the clearest passage in the Old Testament that's pointing us to Jesus. And if you were to read, as we read in Acts, if you were to read those words, that's from Isaiah 53. Here are the verses right before the verses that are recorded in Acts. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then we read what was read in Acts chapter 8. So when the eunuch says, Who's this prophet? Is he writing about himself or somebody else? And in my mind's eye, Philip kind of smiles, maybe even chuckles. I've never had a setup like this before, right? And, and he sits down and says, yeah, let me introduce you to this guy. His name is Jesus, and he completes the story. You see, Jesus is the stunning solution. What we read in Acts, he's led like a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendant? Yeah, but why? They were the preceding verses. For our transgressions, by his stripes were healed. You see, all of that comes first. And he says, who is this guy? And Philip says, it's Jesus. Now, I don't think the guy just read Isaiah 53 Maybe he read the whole book, and as I said earlier, maybe he read that section from you know, Isaiah 17, 18, 19, we are talking about Cush. I'm pretty sure he read the next couple chapters. And isn't God amazing? In Isaiah 56, we read these words, and I'm sure the eunuch read them. Not just Isaiah 53, by his train, he was suffered for our transgression. Look what Isaiah 56 says. 
Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me. He's a foreigner, right? He's from Cush. He's from Ethiopia. And Isaiah 56, right? Three chapters later, I'm sure the guy read it. Let no foreigner say, I'm excluded. And what's the next sentence say? And let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple. The eunuchs get in, in its walls. He's going to give a memorial and a name better than sons or daughters. Legacy, right? Legacy that the eunuch gave up. God's going to give something better than the legacy that comes physically. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. I kind of think when eunuch read those words, his mouth fell open as Philip explained the stunning solution. Through Jesus, even eunuchs can have a legacy. Through Jesus, foreigners have access. Through Jesus, sinners find forgiveness. And through Jesus, all of those difference become a community. Pretty amazing, huh? Well, let me tease out a couple lessons. They're right there, but let, let me give them to you anyway. Here's the first lesson. God loves to break down barriers. You notice that? Right, that's all over Acts chapter 8, right? That's why I started by contrasting the characters. We've got a Greek Jew who, first of all, is kind of looking down his nose as the Jewish Christians are looking down their nose at each other. We're right, you're, we're wrong. They have different political views, different cultural views. They know they're right and the other person's wrong. So here are the Democrats and the Republicans in Acts 6. They're fighting about each other, and God calls them both to be a community. Philip's one of those guys. He goes to Samaria. That's another giant barrier, right? Just like Acts 1.8 says, you'll be my witnesses in, Jeru in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, right? That's kind of out of bounds. God loves to break down barriers. And here in the next chapter, he's talking to a foreigner, not just a Samaritan, kind of a half-breed. This guy's a purebred Gentile of a different race, a different ge geography, a different religion. God sends Philip to him. God loves to break down barriers. He broke down barriers to get to you, and he wants to use you to break down barriers to get to others. You know, sometimes we find safety behind our barriers. The gospel is not safe, all right? The only reason you have a barrier is because we take our preferences and we make them our priority. But if the gospel is our priority, barriers fall down. If your preferences are the priorities, your barriers go up. It's that simple. And so how many barriers are there between you and other people? You can determine that by looking at your preferences, looking at the gospel. The gospel has no barriers other than Jesus. The gospel breaks down barriers. Here's a second lesson that's all over Isaiah 53 and all over Acts chapter 8. Substitution is the center. 
Now, the bullpen, the substitute pitchers for the Phillies are not doing well these days, all right? But the gospel is all about substitution. I was thinking of different metaphors the other day. You notice every gospel metaphor in the Bible is about substitution. Now, I won't, I won't mention them all, but let me mention a few. One metaphor the Bible uses often is the metaphor of a battlefield. But in the ultimate battle, we're not the one doing the fighting. Jesus comes and defeats sin and death for us. He's the warrior that wins the battle and gives us the victory. He's our substitute warrior, right? Another metaphor often used is a metaphor from the market. Our substitute, Jesus, pays the debt that we owe, right? A substitute pays your debt. Another metaphor, a courtroom. The courtroom, another person receives the sentence and pays the penalty you deserve to pay. The metaphor of temple, sacrifices, point to the ultimate sacrifice. You don't die on the altar. Your substitute died on the altar for you. You see, every gospel metaphor has substitution in the center. And if you've got a gospel in which you're the primary actor and you've got to do this and jump through these hoops and you don't have the gospel, the gospel's about substitution. We then live in light of the substitution and give our lives to Jesus in return for what he's done. We don't give our lives to earn what we get. Substitution is the center. Third lesson, last lesson. Humility is a prerequisite. If you don't find yourself weak, outside, no access, shut out, guilty, encumbered by debt, looking at a nightmare, if you've never borne or felt the weight of that humility, you've never come to Jesus. You can only come in a humble state. We have an expression that we uh, sometimes say, nothing is the only thing you can bring. But we love to come with something, don't we? We like to come with our prayers, our Bible memory, our church attendance, our morality, our ethics, our race, our political views, our education, our finances, our possessions. We want to come with something. If you come with something, you get nothing. If you come with nothing, you're in the right position to get everything. Humility is a prerequisite. You can't experience and come to Jesus without humility. But humility is also a byproduct. And so followers of Jesus do not grow in pride, they grow in humility because we're constantly reminded of our failures. We're constantly reminded of our finitude. We're constantly reminded that we're all messed up. But it's not we that make the difference. He made the difference, and he makes the difference. Now, we should be transitioning, and we should be growing, and we shouldn't be the same as we were three years ago or even last year. We need to be developing. But if it's our record, not his record, we're in a world of trouble. It takes humility I'm sure it took humility for Philip to take care of the Jewish widows, not just the Greek widow. It took humility for Philip to run next to that chariot 
and explain to a black African CFO from another country in a different religious background how Jesus is the stunning solution. And it'll take humility for you and for me to reach across some of those boundaries as well and share the stunning solution with people around us as well. So maybe it is all in Acts chapter 8. We're a community of transformation, a community of change, a community of reversal, a community of conversion, a community of difference, a community that has experienced the difference that the gospel makes, and a community now that breaks down barriers, keeps substitution in the center, and is marked by humility, not arrogance, pride, and pomposity. That's what ecclesia should be. What do you say? Sign up for that? Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, this example of what a community should be, what an ecclesia should be. A community where barriers are broken down, a community that has Jesus' substitution right in the center, and a community that's not full of itself, but full of Jesus. Because we regularly remember, it may seem obvious, but it bears repeating. It's not about me. It's about him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. 